back to the Two Button Crew podcast. Woohoo! I'm your host, Glenn. <coughs> <coughs> you okay there, man? Yeah, sorry. I, I think I just got um, stuck in my throat. Anyway, I'm your host, Glenn, and I am joined once again by honorary uh, crew member Nathan Blake of Nathan Blake Games. Howdy ho, everyone. Good to be here. Thanks, Glenn. Mm -hmm. And today is a topic that is very special, very near and dear to my heart. It is Super Mario 64, my favorite game of all time. I, I'm very, very excited for this as well. I, I, it's, it's always had a very special place in my heart uh, as well. Not, not, it's not my favorite game of all time, but uh, it is probably some of my oldest, like, very vivid video game memories are of it. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, it, it was a formative game for an entire generation of Nintendo fans. You know, those uh, kind of late, late millennials, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yep. But uh, let's so let's just go ahead and dive right into it. So Super Mario 64 is it, it's kind of a weird game. So it's to give you some background on the history. It was Nintendo's first. Well, it's not their first foray into 3D, actually, um, if you really look at it, because that would be Star Fox and also the unreleased until recently Star Fox 2. I. Sir, you have to get Stunt Race FX. It's due. Right, right. And Stunt Race <laughs> FX. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So Nintendo had done some stuff with 3D before, and there, there was a rumor that Super Mario 64 actually started as a Super FX um, game, but from what I've been able to, to glean from the internet quite recently, in fact, is that that was never actually the case. That was a yeah. misunderstanding about like the code name of the Super FX chip. But uh, Super Mario 64 uh, was Nintendo's first foray into 3D platforming, and it's you know you know it was launched titled for the N64, and it really is where I think most people were introduced, most Nintendo fans at least were introduced to the possibilities of a 3D space. Yeah, I totally have to have to agree with that um, because you know up to that point there wasn't anything else that you can think of the reason why you might accidentally think it's their first foray is simply because it's the first 3d game that actually made a difference for pretty much anyone <laughs> you know like like yeah there was there were things on pc and stuff like that that were vaguely 3d at that point and and that people had played and stuff like that but i mean to be entirely honest nothing made any impact until until Mario well, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that there were doom doom was very big right but it's still I I even though technically doom is in a 3d space it's not really 3d not really. Okay, okay so let me let me correct you technically doom is in a 2d space but it has graphics that appear three-dimensional. Yes, exactly. And that's what I mean by it not really being 3D, is that everything was flat. Um, it just, they did it in a really intelligent way that made it appear as though it was 3D. And so, uh, yes, Doom is maybe the most uh, iconic, quote-unquote, 3D game uh at the very beginning, but it wasn't even really 3D. Yeah. Not really. And, and there were games that were really 3D prior to that. I want to say 
I think Virtua Fighter came out in like what ninety four mm-hmm. or something. So there were three yeah. D games. They but um, but that's and, what I'm saying is that like none of the other ones had any sort of impact the way that Mario sixty four had and still has. To be entirely honest, because it really did entirely define entire genres of games and mm-hmm. is still like one of the top speed running and streaming games that there are which says a whole lot this long after the fact there's there's not a lot of doom speed runners that have become famous from their doom speed running <laughs> yeah but all that just to say that uh Mario 64 did essentially create 3D games as we know them today mm-hmm. and it is still the standard especially the platformers but even even other action games are still kind of held to the standard of like, well, like, you know, you'll you hear people saying, "Yeah, Mario sixty four was doing this in nineteen ninety seven or whatever." You know, ninety six, ninety six, yeah. But yeah, so the interesting thing though about Mario sixty four is it doesn't really play like in previous Mario games. So previous Mario games are you start at the beginning of the level and then you run to the end of the level and. You know, you grab mushrooms and fire flowers and stuff on the way there. Uh, Mario 64 does away with a lot of that. The um, gameplay is very open-ended. You're not, you, you're usually not trying to just reach the end of the stage. Uh, most stages don't even have a set ending. It's it's an open space for you to explore kind of at your own pace. Um, there's no fire flowers or anything. Um, there are power-ups, but you know they're temporary. Yeah, and and the stars making a shift from being a broken power up to being like actually just like a plot device is a, an interesting change. Um, whenever you think about it from that perspective, as well as far as power ups are concerned, um, yeah, it definitely had you know like it it had the hub world and then the individual lands that you went into that of course had. Uh, very non-linear way of playing. Um, you know, I, I messed around a little bit more with it just today, just to, uh, you know, like, get back into the mindset for the podcast and was just like, yeah, like, the levels are squares. They're not lines, right? And so you're just traveling all around and stuff. And I was reading that uh, Miyamoto specifically wanted it to be where, uh, because the camera was janky, uh a new perspective was going to be difficult for people who were not used to 3d platforming that he wanted it to be a lot more about like traversing around in this, in this place as opposed to like really specific jumps and stuff, which is kind of funny because there are still plenty of places where it feels like you need to do really specific jumps and stuff to get where you're going. But it's not quite as necessary whenever you think about, you know, like uh, I think of the, the pyramid level uh, where, you're able to like get around in that level in so many different ways, even though there are like so many dead zones that'll just kill you instantly if you touch them. But you know, you can fly around and there's a cannon somewhere and you can use the, you can jump on the shy guys and do the like helicopter fly and you can use the bouncy boxes. There's like two or three around there. And so you could just get all over that map in an instant. Yeah. There's uh, even a, a, a Cooper shell you can surf around on. Right. Yeah. And so it really did. It's just super wild. Cause I don't think, we often think about it as being an 
open world game uh, in the same way that we think of open world games nowadays. But it, it really did kind of pioneer that sort of concept as well. And yes, again, I know that there were other things that were kind of vaguely open world before. And, you know, you can go to like uh, Elder Scrolls Arena and stuff like that and be like, oh, you know, it was this big open world. You could go wherever you wanted. But uh, still the impact that this one had with its world is wild. Yeah, I, you know, there are open world games before, but the thing is like open world games before were like contiguous. This is like an open world stages, mm. which is really what's what's interesting to me because there were 2D platformers that were about exploring a level and trying to collect stuff, but it, everything, for, as far as I can tell from those, it was always about like you need to get like the five items before the the um, gate at the end of the level before the the goalpost would activate. Right. Yeah. Or it might be uh, like Metroid and Castlevania games mm -hmm. where there was a lot of backtracking and stuff in order to like you needed to get a specific item so that you could move forward. Um, and so there was a a lot of gatekeeping mechanics to keep you from getting to other parts of the world before you were supposed to you know quote unquote. Whereas in any individual level of 64, you can just accidentally stumble upon another star and end the level early and be like, oh, whoops, okay, sure. And then just go like right back in and try to get the one you were after, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it really is interesting because it, it is super open-ended. Um, you only need to get the first star from Babomb Battlefield before you can unlock other stages. And there's um, there are a few stages, stages that are necessary for uh, progression. Like, you do need to beat the Bowser stages, and you need to beat the first stage in... Let's see, what are the required stages in that game? Because it's... it's um, Babom Battlefield 1. And you don't even need to beat King Babom. You it, you can get any of them in Babom Battlefield. It's just King Babom's the first set mission. Um... You Please. need to do the three Bowser stages to beat the game. And right. you also need to do, what is it called? Dire Dire Docks. Sorry, I'm trying to like think. There's Jolly Roger. It's Jolly Roger Bay and Dire Dire Docks, right? Yeah, Dire Dire Docks. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the, the one with one. the submarine. And you need to do mm -hmm. the submarine mission for some reason. I'm not really sure why that is. but. Yep. I don't think there's hardly anything else that's actually necessary, though. I mean, obviously you have to get enough stars to go through, but it's mm -hmm. it's really a small number of stars. You can you can one hundred percent just a couple of levels in each floor and absolutely make it all the way through the game um without much problem and then just completely ignore entire levels if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, pretty wild, honestly. Like that sort of happened in older Mario games, like Mario yeah, Three. You know, if you did warp zones, you could skip games, yeah. but that's kind of a secret. Um Mario yeah. Three, you could skip some levels, but you know But they weren't entire because that's the weird thing, is that a level in Mario sixty four is actually eight individual missions. Uh, and so... Is it eight? it eight? I thought it was seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven, including the hundred coins. Yeah. I always forget that one because in my brain, there's seven, and then I go, oh, but there's the extra one. But really, it's that there's six, yeah. and then there's the extra one. But anyway, yeah, so you've got, you've got seven individual missions in every single level. So really, like, being like, oh, you could skip a level in older games, like in, uh, you know, going around the level in uh, Mario 3. Um, like, 
that would be like not getting one star in a level on 64 not like skipping an entire painting you know like yeah going into i mean the there, there is super mario world you could skip large chunks of super mario world yeah yeah and yeah and in three you could use like the flute uh mm-hmm. and like you say and and get other places and stuff so there definitely have been some things with it but it is still wild to me that you could you can accomplish an entire playthrough of the game uh if you're not 100 percenting it and never actually see the fire level or the desert level or you know whatever you know and those are the kind of things that you would think of as being like iconic mario levels and so it's wild to think that you never actually have to go to jolly roger bay which is good because it's horrible anyway um (laughs) you don't like jolly roger bay no it's a water level everyone hates water levels we all know it (laughs) All right. I mean, fair enough. I'm pretty sure that level is responsible for my uh, my uh, dislike of eels. Yes, it is. It's, just, it's responsible for everyone's dislike of eels and for everyone's fear of water. And I'm pretty sure it single-handedly ruined the water temple in, in Ocarina of Time, too, just from the, all the PTSD we had from it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the other thing is that if you know what you're doing, these many of these missions, some of these missions are quite difficult, but many of them are really, really easy to do. Like, I remember the, um, what was it, like, Chill with the Bully in uh, yeah, Snowman's uh, Land? I remember yeah. I just, like, did a long jump, then a triple jump onto the platform, and then just jump kicked him twice into the, uh, into the water and grabbed yeah. the star and, like, Less than 40 seconds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I have literally, uh, and this is even as an adult, just playing the game after a long time and not remembering where all the stars are. But, like, I'll just be, like, moving from point A to point B to get a diff, you know, get the main mission star that I'm on. Mm-hmm. And then just stumble into something like that where I accidentally kick some dude in the face and he flies off and dies and then a star just appears. And I'm like, oh. Oh, no, for oh, me it oh. was entirely intentional. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, oh, I know, but I'm just saying, like, that happens a lot in this game, actually, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious. I love it. And then sometimes, hilariously, at the same time, just the the most, and we'll get into this talk, I'm sure, with controls and camera and stuff like that, but, like, mm-hmm. the most simple little jump where you're trying to jump from one little platform to the next, and there's just enough space just between the two platforms for just Mario to fit through, and we somehow don't get the perspective right and jump right into the hole. Like, I I know we've all done that a thousand times. (laughs) But yeah, you know, one of the things is there, there are some things that I, you know, I've, I've don't, I've never bothered to memorize like all of the red coin locations for every stage. But, and that sounds like it would be really annoying to try to try to do, but it's like, you know, no, these stages are fun to explore. Um, so for me, it's it's never the red coin missions. Now it helps that for some of the stages, like Rainbow Ride, they cluster the red coins pretty close together. But um, yeah, in the in the lava level, uh, that one it, they are literally all in one spot on the like unlethal lava land. The the Bowser like you know those little kid puzzles where you move it around. Yeah, the sliding the tile puzzles. Yeah, the sliding tile puzzles. There's it's just a picture of Bowser at. All eight of them are right there. Yeah, the, the puzzles that everyone hates because they don't realize they're actually really easy to solve. <laughs> yes. And so it is It is really hilarious uh, that sometimes with those red coins, you know they just were like, you know what? It's fine. Just phone it in. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, it's usually for the levels that are, that are more dangerous to traverse. 
Yeah, absolutely. Lethal Lava Land is just a nightmare. Um, there are so many times that you can like just barely slip off of something and then get into the lava, and then you know you only get three bounces and then you're dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's assuming you're at full health. And so, uh, and he's hard to control when he's bouncing around. Going, <laughs> that was a pretty good impression. Well, thanks. <laughs> but yeah. So, you know, the level design, I would say, is by and large pretty good with some of the mission structures. But I guess while we're on the topic of the levels, something I noticed is that it seemed like the later levels were a lot less fun. Um, because they tend to be more linear. You have to retrace your steps in certain places. Mm -hmm. um, especially like Rainbow Ride or TikTok Clock. The thing I noticed about TikTok Clock is it's like I'm basically just doing the exact same routine for all of these up to a point. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, honestly, the end game is honestly where I feel like this game is is at its weakest. Mm -hmm. Like all the way up to Tiny Huge Island, everything in the game is like immaculate. And then you get those last couple of TikTok Clock and and rainbow ride and it like not that they're bad levels by any other standards but whenever you compare them to the rest of the game i kind of feel like they're kind of sloggy and difficult and and like i if i have enough stars and i'm not 100 percenting, i'll just skip them <laughs> yeah well and it's they're they're pretty much completely linear up to certain points well tiktok clock is basically uh completely linear and then rainbow ride is like it's linear for that first section where you have to ride the magic carpet, which goes yeah. at a set's pace. So even if you're good at the game, you're stuck waiting for it to finish. Yep. Um, and then it it diverges into multiple paths, uh, one of which is another magic carpet ride. I haven't really thought about it up until this exact moment, um, mm -hmm. which I'm sure that this is just one of those things where I'm being dumb and everybody's already thought of this already. But um, that is their attempt of, like bringing forward into the 3d realm those levels that were kind of like where you're riding the skulls on the lava and super mario world and stuff right and it's like they don't translate as well to 3d as they <laughs> no no they don't um so that does raise a question one of the criticisms i've heard leveled at this game is that um kicking mario out of the stage after every star is padding the game I actually, so legitimately, this the exact thing was pointed out. Like I said, I was messing around with it today, and my little brother-in-law, Mark, uh, he's 17 now, I guess, so I guess I don't know if I could really call him my little brother-in-law, but anyway, um, he was like, whoa, wait, they make you leave the level after every star? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, and, there, and I really had to think about it for a second, and there's a couple of really good reasons, and one of them is that there are actually obviously some stars that you have to load into the right version of the level in order to actually, like, get them. Um, and so it is their way of, like, letting you continue to play in that same course, but, like, change it to different states as well, which I think is is cool, honestly. Now, could you probably do four or five of the stars on most courses without having to change the state? Yes. Uh but I really don't think it's that big of a deal. I've, I've never been too bothered by it. Yeah, I've never been bothered by it either. Um, because for the most part, most stages are open enough that you can get to any point in the stage very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like in, again, Rainbow Ride and TikTok Clock, I can understand that criticism fully. Yeah. 
But for like the bomb battlefield or even something like Lethal Lava Land, you, you can run off in any direction you want and get there pretty quickly, especially if you know what you're doing. So um, those are open enough that I don't think that's really an issue. Um, what you mentioned about stage states, I think is very true. Uh, and we would see that to a greater extent in Super Mario Sunshine, where every stage had something different going on in it. Yeah, absolutely. Every mission, I should say. But the other thing is, I think it also provides sort of a sense of pacing. Because, you know, people are like, I just want to go from point A to point B to point C and grab all the stars in one go. And it's like, well, I don't think that would be nearly as satisfying. You know, it would be kind of like Super Mario Odyssey. And don't get me wrong, Odyssey is a great game, but... Part of the fun of, uh, you know, with, with Odyssey, I, I wrote an article about this years ago, where going from one star to the next and just this sort of like crazed dopamine high haze, you know, is, you know, it doesn't make each star or moon in that game doesn't feel very significant. And yeah, you know, part of that's because there's like 800 of them, but part of it is just that there's really no arc to finding them except stopping going, I wonder what happens if I hit that with my hat. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a valid way of handling it for sure, but I don't think it's a superior way of handling it because like you say, with like 800 of them and with it being just you just collect them as you run through the levels, they feel, uh, they're obviously not quite as uh, like unimportant as coins but it definitely feels slightly closer to collecting coins than it did collecting stars you know it's like mm -hmm. a you could see there being three tiers of objects in a in a mario game actually where you've got coins that you pick up just for no reason mm -hmm. and then you've got moons that you pick up that you're just running around just grabbing all over the place and then you've got stars that like actually feel like there's impact to it like um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that happened in a future Mario game, right? Yeah, exactly. Because it feels like two different things. That this idea of uh, kind of almost like in a what's a good example? There's lots of games where you're going along and you realize that there's something. Oh, Korok seeds. Korok mm -hmm. seeds. That's a perfect example. They felt more like Korok seeds than stars. Mm -hmm. It's you see some sort of little puzzle there. And you're like, oh, I wonder what that is. I wonder what's over there. You mess with it, and then you get a small reward. And you're like, oh, cool. And then you move on. But you didn't feel like I like I accomplished a goal. I defeated a major portion of this yeah. game. Which, with the stars, there being 120 of them, and it ending the level and saving your game after each one of them really made it feel like, boom, I am one one-hundredth of the way done with this game as of now. Well, one like, one-hundred-twentieth. Yes, I know, but, you know, it's, it's semantics. I, I didn't want to have to do the math. <laughs> so, point eight. <laughs> um, and one of the things is I think that the Odyssey uh, um, staff kind of agrees with that notion a little mm -hmm. bit because once you get a triple moon, you're returned back to the Odyssey. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's like they very clearly understood that that pacing was necessary for those larger plot events. Right. Yeah, it is, it is, in my opinion, uh, the difference between uh, a Korok seed in Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom versus completing a shrine, right? Mm -hmm. Like, those are the, the things that you complete that you feel like you've accomplished a goal, like you actually, like, 
beat something, you know, versus, oh, yeah, I kind of walked over into the right area and just happened to pick up something, and now I'm just going to keep going. And, of course, you do get the, the whole idea of, like, there are some objects that don't really come back after you've used them while traversing a level in 64. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Playing the state, the different states do allow you to uh, to use those items again, um, as well as just you know, oh well, you don't get cannons the first time you play this level, but you get it on the third go around, and that's a cool concept because that means you have to traverse the level differently, and you get to experience the different things that the offer the level offers, and it actually increases replayability later on. You come back, you're like, oh, I wonder what happens if I use that that hat and that cannon together on that level that I already beat. You know? Yeah, Snowman's Land is a great example of that, because you don't get the cannon until you go into the igloo, which if you're doing the missions in the, uh, in the suggested order, you're not going to get that until the last mission. And that cannon trivializes the first mission uh, when you're trying to get to the top of the snowman, because I'm pretty sure you can shoot your. There's like a. I think there's a mm-hmm. tree up there. I don't know. That may be the. Um, that may be the DS version, but I think there's a tree up there that you can grab onto if you aim it just right. Yeah, I think so. And so, yeah, it, it, it's definitely one of those scenarios where the fact that the level is in the different states and gives you access to different uh, abilities and uh, like tools at your disposal means that you get to experience different level the level differently each time you play it uh, not each time you play it but in many of the cases that as you play it and then you learn more about the game right like mm-hmm. i guarantee you speed running would be like super duper boring for 64 if they just had access to the cannons at the beginning of every single level because every single speed run of every single level would just be like get in the cannon, fire off in this weird random direction, land on this thing, flip over there and get the star. Okay, you're you know, move on. You know, like as opposed to like having to actually the first time you go through a level, most of the time you have to actually go through the whole level before you get to see something like cannons or or flip some switch that opens some door that allows you to get back to the beginning of the level more easily or whatever, you know. So, uh, do you have a favorite course? Um, I think this is going to be a hot take to some extent, because I don't think many people agree with me, but... I'm, Jolly Roger I'm, Bay? No, I already, I already <laughs> talked about one. I, I really like uh, the first ice level. What's the name of that? Uh, cool Cool Mountain. I think Cool Cool Mountain is a great level. I think a lot of people give it a lot of crap about the penguins and the penguin slide and the... and and uh you know all those sorts of things and it is kind of one of those more vertical levels mm-hmm. uh, that you're kind of like going down but yeah I, but unlike uh unlike something like TikTok clock or um uh tall tall mountain uh cool cool mountain oh gosh is that like a a callback are they are they the same place just at different times of year I don't believe so, but that that may have been that they they may be referring referencing each other. But the thing I like about Cool Cool Mountain is you start at the top and you work your way down. Yeah, which is yeah. you know a lot less tedious. Um, no, yeah. I actually that is one of my favorites, definitely. Um, you know, people maybe I don't know how people feel about the penguin escort mission, but I remember as a kid that was one of my favorite. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I I think that that level has some of the most. I think it's actually 64 at its best because it's a fairly large level because of the verticality of it. It has a lot of interesting things hidden 
like teleport locations, uh, the the wall kicks can work area, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. that are actually somewhat difficult to access. And then it's just you can take that level slow in a lot of ways and just really just experience this as a 3D environment. Um, and and it's cool. It's just a it's a fun place, you know. And I do think the second ice level the, uh, does a good job of it too. But it's a lot more like sprawled out instead of tall. I feel mm-hmm. like, and so uh, there's less. You feel like you're discovering things as you go along in Cool Cool Mountain, and you're coming down off the mountain and stuff. And then of course, like the, the penguin race, even though it can be kind of infuriating and stuff, because even for a good player, sometimes it's difficult to get the the turns right and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's still like an interesting thing. You go in the house, the penguin. You got the race. You get you know, you're trying to beat the penguin's time. There's a secret passageway. You know that you end up at the bottom of the map, but it's just it's a cool area. It's just neat. Like it simultaneously seems uh, like kind of wonderful, not meaning like cool wonderful but like it, it, it fills you with wonder wondrous uh, wondrous yes that's it. it it's simultaneously wondrous that this place exists but then you get out at the bottom and you walk out and you're like oh this actually makes sense like i went through a slide in the middle of a mountain and i came out at the bottom like that that, that works like i just realized cool. that uh tall tall mountain also has a slide in it are we sure that's not the same mountain? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna have to look at some maps now. <laughs> what if, what if Tall Tall Mountain? Even if there is a difference in the map, what if it's just the same mountain in a different time period? Like not just season, but like like after a, a nuclear winter or something like that. Like like now now my conspiracy theory wheels are turned. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I know I put that. Um, question in the outline, but I'm, I'm going to say I'm not really sure I, if I can pick a favorite. There's just so many levels I love in this game. Um, I'm kind of going to have to default to what I played a lot as a kid. And I remember I played a lot of Cool Cold Mountain. I played a lot of Snowman's Land, weirdly enough. Um, I, you know, it's not one of the... Okay, if I'm not... If I can choose any stage in the game and not just like the, the actual numbered courses, I might say Princess's Secret Slide. That's true. That is a good one. It's iconic, too. And it also uh, has some interesting insinuations about how Princess Peach spends her, her downtime as the ruler. Uh, maybe she's not a very good ruler if she has instigated a magical slide in her house that she obviously uses well, on a regular basis. I mean, you say that, but I always was under the impression that these stages existed because of the power stars. Like Bowser's... Bowser like deliberately hid those, created worlds in the paintings and hid those. So by rescuing the princess, you're ultimately destroying all those worlds and the people who inhabit them. Right. I agree. Oh my gosh, I... this is like Link's Awakening. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a little dark, actually. I, I I agree on all of that, but like the specifically the 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 princess's secret slide by its name makes me think that like. This all the rest of them, yes. This one, however, is her own personal magical slide room that she just hangs out in all the time instead of ruling her nation. Okay, I mean, I I was under the impression that it was called that because it was in that room is very specifically described as her room, right? But which is the worst room ever? It's like three stained glass windows of herself, and that's it, right? Yeah, where is the furniture in this castle? Um, uh, gosh, honestly, now that you were saying that, okay, so if I can cheat, Peach's Castle is my favorite area in the game. 
Um, if I have to choose an actual stage, Princess's Secret Slide, if I have to choose an actual numbered stage, probably I'm going to be basic and just say Bomb Battlefield. Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, uh, like, I have three answers to this question, and I, I already said Cool Cool Mountain because I was I was going to just, like, make a, a, like, definitive statement. But the other two is bob on Battlefield for sure, being the first level in the game, so well made, teaching you so much about the game, and then having really cool stuff like setting the precedent for boss battles, setting the, uh, you know, you've got uh, Koopa the Quick, uh, who's just an awesome character that's recurring throughout the game, and, and like, heck, I had a, a stuffed raccoon whenever I was a, a little kid that I named Koopa the Quick, I have no idea why. Um <laughs> I do, he wasn't a turtle, he was a raccoon. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, lots of good stuff. And then the other one is Tiny Huge. Tiny Huge is really just a truly interesting level. Like, there's a lot of times where the mechanic is old and frustrating, but also just so weird how you could just, like... Yeah, it's it's a brilliant idea, but the thing is, I feel like Tiny Huge Island is, like, two levels that are, like, welded together. Yeah. Because they don't really make the big and the small interact a whole lot. There's only one, like, as from what I can recall, there's only ever one mission, and that's the Make Wiggler Squirm, that requires you to do both um, large Mario and then small Mario in the same yes. mission. Yeah, but it does create some really, truly interesting moments that are just truly unique to this game. I can't think of another game that actually in the actual mechanics, you know, like cheat codes and glitching aside. Well, I mean, there was tiny, huge islands in uh, Mario 3, but... No, 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 no. What I mean is, is that allows you to do the weird stuff that oh, okay. happens in that level because of it. Like climbing to the top of the entire stage in huge mode just by like literally just walking just climbing weird stuff happens in that level from time to time whenever you're huge mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a cool concept i like it we've talked about the stages but let's now talk about how you actually get or um get through the stages and so my gosh, this is probably the most diverse Mario's moves set has ever been. Um, I think every game afterwards kind of like narrowed it down to what was what was more necessary. I think that uh, that is very accurate in ninety nine point nine percent of cases. I do think that uh, specifically uh, Sunshine with because of Flood. He's, Mario still has most of the same abilities in Sunshine versus 64 minus punching and kicking. And I really miss punching and kicking, but I know, I know. Uh, but then well, he you has can't the, crouch in that game either. Can you not? Oh, that's right, because because trigger is is flood. Yeah. But yeah, because of floods alternate modes and stuff. Although I guess those mostly count like power ups, don't they? Yeah. I don't know. It's close between Sunshine and 64, I think, because they have a lot of overlap, and then Flood is just a really weird mechanic. And then you get Yoshi as well. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, you have so many different kinds of jumping. You have long jumping. You have side somersaults. You have the regular jumping. Yeah. You have triple jumping. You have backflips. Um, and so few of those are actually necessary for the game. That's actually mm -hmm. what's really cool about it is that you can beat that game with regular jumping. There's, there are very, very, very few points in the game, even 100%ing. There, there's a handful of 100%ing where you do have to know some of the tech, but 
most of the game can be beaten with just regular jumps. And so as a kid, when you're playing this game and you're just running along and you realize you went the wrong direction, you flick the stick and jump and he does the side flip, you're just like, whoa, what did I just do? And then you're like practicing, trying to figure it out. And, you know, it's it's cool. I love yeah, it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is all of the, it's all very, um, very intuitive. Mm -hmm. Just Mario's moves because like, you know, like you said, there's a lot of stuff that you don't need to be able to do. Like, does the game need a slide kick? No. Is it better for having one? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and so it's one of those things where it's like they just looked at it and said, okay, what would you do? What can you do from crouching? Well, if you're crouching, then you're kind of curled up. So that would be like if you sprung up really quickly, you'd be doing like a, a backflip or something. Yep. So it all it's one of those things that... It all makes perfect sense. It doesn't. You don't really need to explain it. You just go, oh yeah, of course, that's what would happen if I tried to launch myself into a jump from a crouching position. Yeah, it, it definitely. Uh, oh, it definitely does a good job of taking what Mario was in two dimensions and translating it to three D. Almost everything makes perfect sense that it would function the way it does in a 3D space based on how Mario functions in previous games. I, and I really appreciate that. That's, that's, a, that's a definite like point in its favor of just saying, boy, yeah, very few games make the jump from 2D to 3D as gracefully as Mario did. Um, and it's hilarious because he's one of the first. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is... Um... You know, one of the things I like about this game is all the jumps feel different. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not sure if triple jumping is higher than doing a side somersault or a backflip or if a backflip and a side somersault are different from one another, but they feel different for some reason. That's one of the things I remember about Odyssey is that it's like when you do a backflip and you do a side somersault, it's like it's the exact same height. You, you look yeah. and it's like, oh, these are these are kind of here more by obligation or just to keep things mm -hmm. simple not necessarily to diversify your moveset yeah 64 did a really good job of each jump had i i imagine there's a slight difference in height i think there's a difference in hang time on them as well mm -hmm. and so um it just really does give a different a different feel is it possible to get around on just back flipping and never side flip or triple jump ever absolutely uh whenever i was young that's pretty much all I could manage yeah. was backflips. And so there's, you know, and it's, it's a great mechanic too, because uh, there's a couple of things there. First of all, a, an exact analogous 3d counterpart to Mario bros two, when you would duck and it would mm -hmm. charge up and then you jump and it would do like this, the big power spring jump. Right. So there's that. But additionally, one of the things about 64 is, is that if you are not, you want to go fast. You feel like going fast. You think you're accomplished enough to go fast. And you probably are most of the time. But if you take it slow, you'll never die. Like, <laughs> And so, like, you go fast, you just slip off of something, you fall, you die. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oops, oh, pff, I was, that was dumb. I shouldn't have done that. But, the you know, like, the backflip allows you this just, like, really controlled high jump. Where yeah, you're like, and I the want backflip is... Fair. You know, side somersault and backflip, they have different uses. Like, I think you can get mm -hmm. more distance with the side somersault. Mm -hmm. And then like a backflip, you can do what I like to call the boomerang jump, where you do a backflip to uh, flip up and go backwards, right? That's what right, you do with exactly. the backflip. So if you don't touch the stick, Mario just does a backflip and he um, lands a little bit behind where he started. But if you press forward and uh, away from where you're backflipping, you'll actually land where you started. 
Right, exactly, which means that if there's a platform above you and a hole that's a little offset from where you are, you can actually manage to, like, kind of curve the bullet, as mm-hmm. it were, around the uh, around the ledge and end up on top of it, which is a very cool function uh, that's, like, again, not necessary to beat the game at all, but, like, sometimes you accomplish something with it. You go, that was cool. I feel good mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Now, and so for the most part, controlling this game feels great um and mario I, I will say there are a few things that i think later mario games did better in terms of control though so i mean it's is do you want to sing the praises anymore before we get into the uh criticisms i have no it's okay we can we can jump right into it i mean okay first of so, all it won't be the first time anybody's complained about the controls on mario 64 mario has a <laughs> weird kind of turn radius sometimes that's mm-hmm. the first thing that just kind of bugs me about the controls trying to go back to it is that especially in the later stages because you're on these very you have to take it very slow in the later stages because yes. of uh, that because if you try to turn around too quickly he'll just and the thing is I, I'm pretty sure that Bowser um, and, and a brilliant act of foresight grease the edges of every stage specifically the edges yeah specifically yes. the edges you think he'd, he'd go so far as to grease the entire thing but you know king koopa launching like military dictatorships are expensive okay yes, i've absolutely. always wondered where he gets all of his funding for that um i, I actually had a um plan if we ever did more of the tabletop <laughs> rpg podcast to, to have a session that kind of explains where bowser gets his money That's but a- um, it turns out he's he's actually kidnapping and ransoming a bunch of other <laughs> royals. <laughs> that so was good. my idea, but That's we good. never, unfortunately, we never did another tabletop RPG podcast. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but I I totally agree that uh, the turn radius thing is honestly the second most infuriating thing about the entire game, um, and the grease the greased edges with, with that. This is a, a literal, actual example from today. Mm-hmm. I'm standing about, you know, what is equivalent to a full foot away from an edge. And I'll, I'll use cardinal directions, the northern end of, of this platform. Mm-hmm. On the eastern end of this platform is a moving platform that's on a, a cycle, you know. Okay. And I want to turn towards that, and I flick the stick, and Mario decides that for some reason he needs to have a turn radius of three feet instead of one feet. And so he just hurls himself at the edge of the platform that I am on. As I'm trying to go east, he goes north first, gets to the edge. I realize what's happening. I pull all the way back on the stick. And what proceeds to happen is a full five or six seconds of Mario going (laughs) on the edge of it as he is just barely clipping on and off of the ledge with his feet over and over again and traveling eastward. And I'm like, it's okay. This platform's coming along and I'm going to end up on it. And I could not stop him from falling off. Like all I could do was keep him falling and then getting back on and back on. And it's not like doing the like ledge grab. He's literally just doing the like, I'm Mario falling off of a cliff animation and just bouncing. And I bounce over to where the platform is, and it's too fast, and it just barely passes me by, and then I just fall off where the platform should have been. 
Yeah, and this is much. what happens in Mario 64 because of turn radius and greased edges. And I was literally going to complain about that before you said turn radius and greased edges. <laughs> so it's perfect. Uh, I had so many times today where I was just like kind of rushing it, you know, just goofing mm-hmm. around and would just like be running up on an edge and let go of the stick. And he would just, you know, he'd just take one more step than I told him to. Just one more step and it was yeah. enough to kill him. <laughs> but so... The other thing is that um, one of the things that's really interesting, and so for a while I thought that this was an aspect that was wrong with the controls, and then I realized that it actually is part of the game's design and you need to account for it, is that friction is also really weird in this game. Because mm. you, you do not realize how weird it is going back to this game because like pretty much every surface has its own friction value. And mm-hmm. that's not something you do in video games anymore. In video games nowadays, you're either walking on um, like coarse sandpaper or you're walking on ice. Yeah. Those are and the I... two extremes. And here it's kind of a little bit of both. And you actually have to kind of learn, oh, right, I have this much, um, this much traction on what looks like a, a rubber floor. So I have a lot of traction on that surface, but I don't have a lot of traction on like this pyramid surface or uh, on the snow or whatever. Right, yeah, absolutely. It's It very quickly happens where you think, oh, well, like, this incline I was able to crawl up on in the first level, in bob on Battlefield, so I should be able to crawl up this. And you try, and you just immediately slip and fall down it. Um, you know, like, the, they all have a different, like, friction coefficient, I guess, is probably the... the and so it's just so strange, because, yeah, in modern games, they even have mostly done away with the icy ones. Like, pretty much mm-hmm. all things are the exact same friction level because they like people like consistency in general and anytime you have a random like slippery level thrown at you in the middle of a game that otherwise doesn't have slippery levels you're like what are they doing why have they done this to me no um i actually watched uh markiplier play uh, the new five nights at freddy's uh ruined dlc just a few weeks ago and legitimately just right in the middle of the, the game there was just a random area where like the floor had literally been greased and he was just like what is happening why did why did they put this in the middle of the game like you know it, it bugged him uh and he was like you know they they've they haven't done like ice floors in games much in a long time and then after like two seconds of dealing with it he's like this is why i remember why they don't do it anymore it's terrible <laughs> and so I, it's it's still not uh, an actual complaint necessarily about Mario because you just have to deal with it, right? Yeah, it, it's one of those things that it's it's part of the challenge of the game, and once you identify that, you you very quickly learn to account for it. So it's it's one of those things where you can be frustrated, but it's like, well, you're not really that. I mean, I don't know. You can say that it's not a a fair thing to put in the game, but it it is. I, I think it's a very deliberate thing that you're supposed to be learning and learning to account for. Absolutely. I agree. But yeah, overall, the controls, you know, we, we spent some time complaining about, but the controls, if you're in an openness area, especially, it is so fun. It is so fun. Mario has the perfect sense of weight. And if you're not having to do like super precise stuff over a bombless pit, um, it, it feels amazing. It's just, I think yeah. the later portions of the game, they probably didn't have time to optimize it for like what felt good in the game because those open spaces are really what feels great and to be fair to uh it is a product of its time and its limitations and um it would be 
an easier game if you could like the controls would be less frustrating if the graphics were good enough for you to to really get depth better right because mm-hmm. there's only so much depth you can tell when everything is a single texture and so you know modern games do a great job of using lighting and mm-hmm. different textures and things like that to convey depth a lot more and this is just you know this is the first attempt right and yeah. so it it was it was what they had at the time and nowadays yeah the camera angles are slightly better because we've been iterating on it for literally like 20 years now no 30 25 years now we've been iterating on it for 25 years so obviously they figure out some better ideas but also just the actual world you're in you can tell depth a lot better than you used to be able to so you can judge distances better and so even though it would be easy to be like, oh, man, it's so frustrating because of camera and because you can't tell how far things are away and stuff. And it's like, yeah, but you can only solve that with 25 years of, of innovation. Like, yeah. it had to start somewhere. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, we'll get to this in graphics. The, the environments, I actually, for the first time in my life, noticed that the environments were shaded. Yeah, uh, yeah, they've got, there's like three shades per thing, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's a gradient. It's just, they do it in a really weird way. That's not how they yep. do it in the modern games, but um, yep. I can talk about that later. Uh, so you talked about the camera. Let's let's talk about the camera. If Mario 64 is heavily criticized for anything, it's, it's camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, you know, as a kid, I don't remember, I remember, of course, having some trouble with cameras, but I kind of ignored it because every game had problems with cameras back then. Um, that was just a problem we didn't solve. And so I always thought it was kind of just like, okay, well, what is it that people don't like about the camera? And playing this game, I realized what it was. I always assumed it was that, oh, the camera would get stuck on stuff or it was, um, you know, it was like um, unresponsive. Because that is one of the things that will happen is that you'll try to move the camera and it'll tell you no. Yeah. And I finally figured out what the problem with the camera is in um, this time around. And it surprised me. It's over-designed. Yes, exactly. It has, um, instead of just linear usage of the camera, where you could draw it, you know, you in a modern game, you've got your right control stick is mm-hmm. usually camera. And you just push it, and it moves the distance that you tell it to move. And what they wanted to do with 64, I believe, just from from the feel it gives you, I haven't read anything about this specifically, but it seems as though what they wanted to do was give you some pre-baked camera angles that would theoretically make any 3D area feel almost more like it was a 2D area for you to platform through. Do you need a high camera angle so you can see down below what you're landing on? Do you want it to be straight from the side so it's almost like it's 2D side scrolling? Or do you want it to be a closer camera or further camera? And it's like, it's got settings instead of just being a camera that you move. Well, and the other thing is the camera is constantly shifting around. Uh, to mm-hmm. try to to try to give you a better angle, which is kind of obnoxious, actually, because sometimes yes. you don't like one of the things I noticed is that um, if I tried to backflip onto something, certain platforms, the camera would move in the direction that Mario was facing to give me more perspective yes. of where Mario was going, despite the fact that I wanted to land on something that was behind Mario. So it's one of those things where it's actually it's it's astounding. And in some places, it works really, really well, like when you're climbing up the mountain in Babon Battlefield. Yeah. You know, you you would expect a camera from this age. You'd have to constantly be like tr- having to move it around. Yeah. And no, it 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 has a cinematic feel to it as it, it sweeps around the mountain as you go up. It's good. 
But then there are other times where it's um, it's like, here, let me just let me just help you out a little. Let me just nudge that a little bit. And it's like, no, no, it was fine where it was. Like when you're, it, it's a combination of the camera and the controls when you climb a pole, mm-hmm. and the. For some reason, Mario likes to, like, actually do, like, a rotation around the pole as he climbs up a pole, Mm -hmm. which makes actually figuring out where you want him to be when he gets to the top of the pole to make your jump, especially if it's, like, under duress, like there's fire on the pole or something, kind of difficult. And then the camera might follow him around the pole or something a little bit while he's doing it. And you're like, no, no, I want to look that direction. I want Mario to face that direction because I'm going to get to the top of the pole. I'm going to jump off and land on the other pole. And there's fireballs coming from me. So please leave me alone, camera. Just just follow me. Just be static for two seconds. <laughs> but now, now that we've criticized the camera, let me just say something that this was, as far as I can tell, the first camera of its kind. So mm-hmm. it, it's understandable that Nintendo would, one, be a little bit um, concerned that uh, people wouldn't know how to operate it and they wanted to help be as handholdy as possible. But the other thing, like, really, stop and think about this because this, this is something that I'm pretty sure Super Mario 64 is the first camera where it's disconnected from the character's orientation completely. Yeah, because I think so. Before you had first person or you had like tank controls and the camera was always like a set position behind the character. Here right. the camera can rotate around Mario and Mario can move independent of the camera. And, you know, we just take that for granted nowadays in modern games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the things that people get upset about with it are things that have been solved in modern games. But you can see why... Um, in this, the first attempt at doing it, it would actually be kind of difficult to figure out. As well as the developers had to think about not just what was possible, but also what would help the, the player. Mm-hmm. And there are many choices that they make as they make games that they think, oh, well, we'll make this a little simpler for them instead of, you know, just having free reign over the controls of this thing or it just falling right behind you. We'll try to adjust the camera for them as they do things to make it easier on them. So going up a mountain or or facing a certain direction and the camera kind of shifts to help you, you know, things like that. They seem like really reasonable things to do where you're the developer trying to help your players out. And they do work very well in some situations. And in others, they don't. But there's no way to know until you launch the game and it's been 25 years so that people can actually get a feel for that. And so you have things like when you're in a cave in this game and you're going up... Mm-hmm. like platforms and you want the camera to swing around behind you but the ca- the cave's small and so you try to swing the camera further and it just and tells you no and you can't actually get the camera angle you need yeah. well that's that's why you have like the the Mario camera right and... exactly yeah so there are ways to get around it and in a modern game you would just push your control stick and the camera would swing around and it would just move up on your main character as it got up against the wall. Right. And it might be a bad camera angle, but it's a better camera angle than than not being able to really see what you're jumping to at all. And the Mario camera helps, but it's not a perfect solution. And no, not at all. No. And, and so, you know, I, I can absolutely see how they got where they went on their first try. And so even though, yes, it is easy to kick dirt in a in an ancient game's face and tell it it should have done better. It, it was a product of its time. It had, it, it's the 
beginning of the better. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the things that I find really charming is that this, you know, to put into perspective how unique the, at the time, and to be fair, Nintendo wasn't the only one that was developing a camera like this. I believe Nights into Dreams, which released after Super Mario 64, so... Um, Nintendo did beat Sega to, to the punch. Nights into Dreams in the on-ground sections had a camera that you could rotate around the character yeah. and the character could move by pressing. Because again, like going back to controls, that was a novel idea that you press and it goes into the direction of the camera. Normally you had tank controls. Yep, absolutely. But, um, you know, they, they had to like explain it as, oh, you have a little cameraman floating behind you, you know, the, the lackey <laughs> right. two. I always find it interesting when something is so new that they have to give an in-universe explanation for it to, to help people visualize right. it. And then, it, yeah, it was fun to get to see him, like, in mirrors and stuff throughout the game just randomly. It was it was fun. It's a cool concept. So, uh, honestly, yeah, as, as much as we all want to talk trash about it, I think they did a really good job with what they had, and we wouldn't be where we are now without it. And so I, I honestly still have to give it to them that they did a great job. Um, even though it sucks sometimes by modern standards, yeah. but well, you know, it's it's the thing where it's like if it only just did a little bit less, it'd actually probably be a better camera. That's that's yep. the irony to me. Yeah, absolutely, and you know that's where you kind of get to like there there iterations not that long afterwards. Uh, you know, even just in like Ocarina of Time, for instance, where the camera is uh, able to be recentered right mm-hmm. behind you, whatever you want. Like, that that's a big deal, right? And then locking on to something that you really need to pay attention to. Uh, and it wasn't even, like, an actual platformer. So mm-hmm. um, those things would have been helpful, uh, at the very least, being able to recenter your camera, big deal. And I'm sure that Zelda is not the first game to do that, but it was definitely one of the ones that really solidified yeah, it. I don't as... know about recentering the camera, but I do know locking on to points of interest. Um, Mega Man Legends did that before... Ocarina yeah. of Time. Ocarina of Time did it better, but um, yep. Mega Man Legends yeah. had a lock-on feature. Yeah, Ocarina of Time pretty much revolutionized 3D combat, um, whereas uh, Mario obviously revolutionized 3D traversal. <laughs> now, we, we already talked a lot about progression, but, you know, something that you mentioned with, like, the unlocking the, um, the can- uh, cannons and stuff, and with the the hats that's something i found really interesting and Mar- this isn't the super mario world did something similar with the switch palaces and like the switches return in this game but i do find it kind of interesting that there is this sort of like almost metroidvania action adventure kind of feel to this game because it has that sort of what you do in one stage might affect another certainly yeah uh because in the switch palaces this is a good example of something that's similar but vastly different in the way that it actually plays out because the switch palaces actually end up just being do you want to play this level on easy mode uh is is what it ends or up do you want access to the secret exit right exactly there's there's very occasionally that sort of thing but like a lot of it's like oh hey i can just walk across this area i used to have to jump over mm-hmm. and oh here's just an extra power up just right here for me at the beginning of the level that i wouldn't have had otherwise you know whereas this is like uh I can kill myself in a lot of ways in Mario 64, and I probably don't kill myself near as often as I do whenever I'm using a flying cap. So what I'm saying is is that uh, 
getting the flying cap unlocked in levels does not, in fact, make the level easy mode. Uh, there are some stars that it makes it slightly easier to get, or that may even be nigh impossible to to, to get without it. Uh, obviously, like Ball on Battlefield, though, there's uh, the one with the cannons and the island in mm-hmm. the sky that you pretty much have to have it. Um, but uh, that that to be said, like unlocking it just makes traversal in a level different. It doesn't make it easier necessarily which i think is cool it's like oh i've unlocked a way that i can I, now get I around say this that level lethal lava land is easier with a wing cap that's true uh although like i said i can really accidentally kill myself really yeah. easily with a wing cap <laughs> well and the other thing is the wing cap is kind of like um believe it or not it's kind of like the cape or the raccoon tail yeah. uh in previous games it does make mario fall a little bit slower yeah 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 you get the, you get the slight slight uh, like slowed down fall, and then because you actually even see the little wings flap when he jumps, mm-hmm. um, and then then yeah, the flying itself you have to like go down and then pull up and stuff. And if you're if you're not very good at that, which uh, I've 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 had varying levels of success at actually controlling that thing throughout my lifetime. So uh. <laughs> yeah, uh, once again, it's it's one of those things where the um, the camera doesn't. And weirdly enough, this is one of the areas where the camera doesn't do anything pretty much. It just stays locked yeah. in place and you can like turn it 90 degrees and stuff. And it's one of those things where it's like, okay, this is one of the few places where it would have been nice if it kind of leaned into each turn a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because there's uh, the, the desert level. What's that one called? Uh, Shifting Sandland. Yeah, shifting sand land. Uh, you get you, you have the wing cap by the time you get there, and uh, the first mission is to grab the star that the bird has, mm-hmm. and so it's like instantly you're just like, oh, it's gonna be so easy. I'm just gonna get this hat. I'm gonna fly it. I'm gonna get that bird, and you just you can't. Like the the turning is not tight enough. I, you can, I'm sure. I'm sure with a little bit of skill you can, but the turning is not tight enough. The camera angles are terrible, and it just makes it really difficult to actually like spot where he is. And be sure that you're, like, on the right height axis because you have to, like, do the up-down, like, sort of uh, nosedive and pull back up sort of thing. Whereas the bird's just flying on mostly the same axis the whole time. And so it's, like, really hard. And then you end up getting it just by, like, standing on one of those little towers and just hopping once. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I was, like, really overcomplicating that. I could have just done that at any point. (laughs) Or you fly to the top of the pyramid for the second star, and you just, like, almost get right in there and get that star, but you end up, like, barely brushing the side of the pyramid and sliding off and dying instantly. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, I think that's all we have to say about the gameplay, at least for now. Do you have anything else you want to add? No, I think that would probably be all of it. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's what I have. All right, well, with that out of the way let's talk about the game's presentation um i don't think i need to give a plot summary for this game mario shows up to the castle looking for cake uh bowser hears voice of bowser saying scram and it's like okay well here we go again now the instructions say Mm -hmm. that that bowser is trying to bring turn the inhabitants of the paintings into monsters and then bring them out of the paintings to take over the kingdom yes um, so there is a tiny bit more story that like does kind of lend itself to actually something actually mattering about what you're doing right now and that there's like a little more lore and backstory. As with all Mario games, that takes a absolute back burner uh, to actually play the game and they usually cram it somewhere in the instructions or something and you don't actually know what's going on. Yeah, but, it, uh... is, it is interesting just to <laughs> take a bit of a detour 
Um, it is interesting reading the instruction manual for that game because um, Mario has a little bit more of a 90s attitude. And, yeah, and he talks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's like, dang, I kind of miss this version. Of, where, where's this version of Mario? But It's so funny because that game, the game simultaneously solidifies Mario as Charles Martinet Mario that barely talks and and has a very specific, like, just kind of bouncy, like, average Joe kind of personality, but also in the instructions has him actually have a real personality that is, like, he talks and he, like like you say, kind of has a, like, slightly more 90s sort of feel to him and stuff. It's really funny. While we're talking about characters, this is something I noticed. So some of the Toads give you power stars when you talk to them. yeah. And so there's the one in TikTok clock who um, you talk to him and he tells you about how if you look at the hands and go in at certain hand positions, it, it does something strange to the stage. Yeah. And then he gives you a power star. I was thinking, well, that's weird. How does he know that there's something in the stage like that the hand positions affect the stage unless he went in there and he has a power star? <laughs> I'm telling you, that Toad is an absolute boss. Don't mess with yeah. him. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. That that definitely. Oh. Oh. What if he is uh, uh, Captain Toad? He's Captain Toad. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> but um. Well, I mean, Captain Toad doesn't jump. How do you get up into to the stage in the first place? He doesn't jump because he'd be too powerful if he jumped. He doesn't want to make the levels easy. Also, he's wearing a big pack now, you know. Okay. Back then, he wasn't wearing the pack. Anyway, <laughs> that's that's just something I, I – that's my headcanon. No, that's excellent. Yeah, as you started to say it, I was just like, oh, my gosh, you're right. He would have to have actually, have, like, gotten the star from the level. It makes so much sense now. That's great. But – um, Yeah, so it, visually, yeah. is that, that what we're – Let's, let's talk about the game's visual style, and this is a very early 3D effort from Nintendo, so, you know, the polygons are low and all of that, but the game, like, each area does effectively evoke a proper mood. Um, Baban Battlefield is big and bright and colorful. Um, the mansion stage, Big, Boo, big Boo's Haunt, is creepy, especially if you're a kid. Oh, the piano. Please, never again. Uh, yeah, the piano. Um, you know, Hazy Cave, ha- Hazy Maze Cave is um, not, like, creepy, but it's also kind of ominous. So it does, like, the visual style does um, a good job of conveying the, you know, the feeling of each area. But mm. at the same time, there are a lot of times where things are just, like, it looked like they kitbashed the stage. Like, they just took a bunch of random stuff and threw it together. Yeah, there is a weird uh, feeling in some of the levels where, you know, and and maybe this plays into that whole conspiracy theory of uh, Mario, Super Mario Bros. 3, that it's all just a, just a performance, you know? Mm-hmm. But there are, there are some levels, which the Bowser levels always were, look like this, but, like, in uh, Lava Land... Yeah. In the inside the cave, in the middle, in the volcano, mm-hmm. there's a thing that will fall out and try to flatten you, and it looks like it's just made out of Legos or whatever on the inside, and it and it looks like the stuff that you see in the Bowser levels, and it's just mm-hmm. like, is all this fake? Like, <laughs> and yeah, it does oftentimes have this feeling so in some areas where it's just like, 
what is this? Why is this here? And why doesn't it look like anything else in the game? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, even lethal, lethal Lava Land outside the volcano just looks like a, a random assortment of things that don't all necessarily are aren't all necessarily thematically connected to one another. Because you'll have like some yellow platforms next to that look kind of like they're made out of rubber next to uh, stone work. And then metal yeah. grating, and it's just this kind of very—I mean, it's, it's fun weird. to jump across, but it's thematically—it's—it's it's all over the place. Yeah, it's got a log that you ride. Oh right, yeah. In a lava land, there's a log in a lava land. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> lethal uh, loga land, <laughs> but yeah. So you have a bunch of these weird discordant visual things at times um and other stages are very um look very carefully crafted yeah both of the ice levels are and and the boo level i think those are maybe the three best at just you really feel like you're in in that place and you forget that you can literally just walk off the stage and fall into an abyss in in cool cool mountain like mm -hmm. Like, yes, you know it's there, but, like, your brain, actually, there is enough suspension of disbelief that you're just perfectly fine with the fact that this is just a floating island in nothingness at you know, all times. It's funny I, that I, you I, mentioned suspension of disbelief because the game actually tutorializes the idea of invisible walls. Yes, it does. There's there's a, a message that you can read on one of the walls that in Peach's Castle that's like, by the way, some stages at their boundaries have invisible walls. That yeah. it's just like, why did you feel the need to explain that? Right. It I guess it's just concept. because they couldn't render terrain out beyond it. Right. Yeah, and that's a that's the thing that I'm I'm specifically thinking about is that like. Uh, level design, they did a really good job because I rarely remember that I'm on a floating island and that there's nothing around me and that they refuse to actually render anything beyond the beyond the map. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's so strange, and part of it might be just because we've been playing the game since we were kids, but like any you know, so many other games. I'm well, like, even wow. as a kid, I remember getting to the edge of the bomb battlefield and thinking it's a little weird how it just cuts off and there's an invisible wall. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But, but even with that, like, they do a good job of, like, drawing you into the level and, like, discouraging you from going to those edges enough that you're just like, oh, this works. You know, like, this feels feels right. And more so than other 3D games of the era, uh, like, I remember GoldenEye's, like, Invisible Walls and uh, stuff like that feeling, like, a lot more jarring and maybe it's because it was a more realistic game in a lot of ways but anytime i like made my way to the edge of a map and it was an invisible wall or even just like a a poorly textured wall of trees or something i was just mm -hmm. like oh yep here's where the end of the level is but i don't feel that way much in 64 i don't know why <laughs> yeah but you know, one of the things that a lot of people feel about this game is they get kind of a creepy vibe from it especially peach's castle yeah, there's spooky, spooky stuff in that game, and not just uh, the stuff that's meant to be spooky. The you know, stuff that's meant to be that's, spooky. That's like one of the prime examples people use to describe a liminal space. It's just like, yeah, it's kind of yeah. creepy how Peach's Castle is abandoned, despite the fact that there are toads there. They just kind of turn invisible when you're not close to them. Yeah, they're ghosts. Everything's ghosts. That's what it really is. Oh yeah, uh, Mario's <laughs> Mario's actually in purgatory, and he's he's yeah. been dead this entire time, and you know, but yeah. that's just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> And there's there's some interesting spaces in the game 
that like are spooky in its own weird way. Like obviously the level to Hazy Maze Cave mm-hmm. being like the weird metallic. Uh, wait, no, no, Hazy Maze Cave is that? It's the weird metallic pool that you jump into, right? Yes. Does that go to it? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. That's so weird. To this yeah. day, it kind of weirds me out. Like, yeah. Why does Peach have a huge vat of mercury? Yeah, that you jump into to get to a weird cave with really awesome music. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So, stylistically, it's one of those things where it is, it's very surreal. And, you know, I've, I remember Matthew Toronto years ago when talking about this game, mentioning that it's kind of fitting because it's almost like looking at a surrealist painting, you know, like a yeah. Salvador Dali with the clocks melting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does have that clocks melting feel a lot, honestly. Um, and maybe that is simply because you're jumping into weird, warpy, melting paintings a lot. But, uh, you know, you jump in, they go... Um, but yeah, it's it's truly... There's a lot of surreal aspects to the game. And for it to be their first foray into that is just so strange because... Uh, there were certainly, into 3D space, I mean, because mm-hmm. there were certainly surreal moments in, like, Mario World, for instance, because you're in a land made of, like, literally food and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But still, it felt like a linear, like, world that could exist somewhere. Uh, whereas this felt like it was on purpose trying to be, like, a space that you're lost in or something. And that's, that's not a, that's not a bad thing. I think it did a good job, uh, using that, but yeah, it felt, it felt separate from reality in a weird way that, that Nintendo rarely does and never did with Mario before. (laughs) Oh yeah. So to, to mention that thing about the environmental shading while playing this game. So this is something that I found interesting because it, um, I was able to like look at it, and because I'm a programmer, I was able to figure out how they did the shading on like the uh, the walls. So they they don't have actual like point lights in this game, uh, which is understandable because that's very expensive to do on something like the N64. Yeah. But I, I realized they they did this really cool kind of shortcut method where um, so there's what's in uh, computer graphics. There's what's known as a normal vector, which basically just stick something, a pen in something so that's completely perpendicular from any angle to the surface. Right, okay. Um, that's that's your normal vector. If the normal vector is pointing towards the left side of the screen, it's dark. And if it's pointing towards the right side of the screen, it's light. Oh, okay. So just depending on where you look, it kind of adjusts the, the shading on the object. Mm-hmm. And that, that makes it so that the, the environment can, you know, the walls can be shaded very... Um, very cheaply right yeah so um that, that was just a cool thing i noticed for the first time playing this game that's very cool yeah no that that's well done yeah and yeah uh as far as visual goes otherwise like mario looks good for uh for a 64-bit game like he really does i was just looking at him today and just thinking like scenes in his arms and stuff like that actually not that bad considering the low poly count and was just like you know what you know this, this is good, especially when you compare it to, like, any third-party game that was on the N64 that looked like hot trash. Yeah, his proportions are a little weird compared to, like, what they would be in later games. Um, but, yeah, 
Um, Mario Mario looks good, and my gosh, he is well animated. Like, so here's here's the detail I wanted to, but before we move on to like another topic, to to give you an idea of just how well animated this game is, Mario has three animations for getting stuck in snow and sand. Three different ones. Yes. So there's if you fall in. If you just jump right. and fall stuck. normally, he gets stuck up to his waist and he pulls himself right. out with his arms. If you dive head first in, his, his top will get stuck. Right. And, and his then legs will sink out. slowly if you just kind of walk around on it. There is a third one, however. If you oh. ground pound the sand or the snow, he'll have his, his bottom stuck in the sand and the snow and his <laughs> feet will be sticking, his top and his feet will be sticking out. So it'll be kind of canted back at a 45 degree angle. Well, that's great. I hadn't seen that one. Uh, any, any Again, that together. was something I, I only realized on this playthrough. Yeah, like that's very cool. There, there is so much attention to detail in the animations, and considering how primitive 3D animations were at the time, the like they throw so much um, flair into it. Like Mario, when he does a triple jump or does a backflip, if you don't move afterwards, he'll do like a little ha ha. Yeah. Absolutely. Those sorts of things are still things to this day that not all. Uh, 3D animators bother to do with their characters. That there has never been a moment where, like, I watched Mario move and was like, "Well, that was an unrealistic way for him to do that." You know, like, like his his punches and kicks and stuff feel like they have force behind them because mm-hmm. of the animation. Uh, the even just like the the way the screen shakes and stuff when you do certain things. Uh, like just a really good job of animating things in such a way to make use make the most of what technology they had at the time and you know i if if a modern mario game had the exact same animations for mario uh and just better textures i no one would complain at all you know they'd just be like yeah that's the mario game good <laughs> yep <laughs> so let's talk about the music and um playing this game so it's weird i i love this game and i love its music um, it's, you know, you have bombastic, uh, things like Big Bob's Battlefield. You have creepy music like, um, uh, Big Boo's Haunt. Like, it all really communicates the tone really well. But the thing is, I noticed that going back, it's like, yeah, you know, despite how iconic this game is, the, some of these songs definitely live on. Peach's Castle, for example. Uh, which may be my favorite piece of video game music ever. Um, but, like, they only really come up, most of these songs only really come up in relation to Super Mario 64. Like, if Nintendo's deliberately calling back to it. It's true. Yeah, they're. Uh, I think the a lot sliders, of... the, like, made an appearance in Mario Galaxy 2, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good music in the game, but none of it is is music that you would. Almost none. I, I I shouldn't say all of it. Uh, very few of the songs are songs you would catch yourself listening to at any other time than while playing a Mario game. You know, like yeah. like you're not going to track down the themes to any of these levels other than just a couple of them to listen to at a later date. You're not even probably going to get many of them just like kind of stuck your head humming them at some point. You know, and, and even though they're good songs, like I have nothing against them, but like I can't think of uh any of them that just really stood out to me other than like yeah the main castle theme and obviously bob uh 
battlefield but of course that's like the first one that you hear so of course Mm -hmm. it's going to be in our heads but it's also a banger the slider theme like I said that one shows up a little bit here and there yeah um, and I guess maybe well you know again it's one of those things like I'm I'm a nerd so I'll listen to this music on its own definitely but Mm -hmm. um, yeah like you know I I like the Bowser themes Um, I like Cooper's Road, you know, I like all of these songs. They're great songs, but they yeah. just haven't had, I don't, yeah, that's another one, like, Cooper Road, I, excuse me, yeah, that one shows up again in Mario Galaxy 2. That's, that's they, they do a remix of that for the Bowser levels. So, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm being unfair to it. it, it they do get some callbacks. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're good songs. Um, none of them are genre defining mm-hmm. i would say which is is you know maybe a high bar to set but i would i would argue that uh like ocarina of time for instance actually did have some just truly phenomenal music that uh that did in fact was genre defining at some points um but obviously it's Music is a huge part of Zelda, especially mm-hmm. Ocarina of Time, the Ocarina of Time. Uh-huh. Uh, and so it it makes sense that it would have more of an impact musically. Um, and so it's it's that's not really necessarily a fair comparison, but I, I will say that, yeah, as far as, like, uh, there's a lot more music from other games that I think about a lot more than Mario 64's music, other yeah. than a handful of songs. Well, and I, I think I, I would be a little bit more, you know, the more I'm thinking about it, the more positive I am about the music. But, yeah, it is definitely one of those things where, like, half the soundtrack is just kind of whatever. Um, I will say this is probably my favorite rendition of Peach's Castle. I want to get your opinion on this. Um, I want to make sure it's not just me. So it has this kind of peaceful, stately sound to it in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But is it just me or is it like that? I guess it's meant to be a cello. Like, the way it kind of quickly dips down in, on the octave. Um, yeah, I think so, yeah. Cause... Yeah, in the song. Like, there were, to me, ever since I was a little kid, I always felt like there was something sinister about that. Yeah, um, yeah, because it's got the... Uh, it has some sort of keys, and then it's got some sort of bass, uh, which is either going to be a cello or, like, a standing bass. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a sinister aspect to yeah, it. I it, think it, it does that. Yeah, and I think that that does a good job of like kind of this general conveying of of it being like, oh yeah, this is Peach's castle and it's happy and everything, and then but actually Bowser's taken over and there's nobody here and things are terrible yeah, and it, you're all it, gonna die. <laughs> it, for me, it's one of those things where it's like this is a peaceful place, this is a safe place to run around and, and goof off, but at the same time, understand something's not right. Yeah, absolutely. So it like it does really do a good job of conveying that. Like I said, it's very possibly one of my favorite pieces of video game music. Like that version specifically. Later versions are good. It's it's a good composition, mm-hmm. but I don't think they really capture that that very particular feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. But okay, so now that we've we've ragged on the music, um, <laughs> again, good soundtrack. Just it's it's weird how a lot of those songs don't really stick out in the mind. Um, yeah, because and I, uh, just one last thing to say about that. I think probably the reason why that's so noticeable is that, in fact, uh, Super Mario Bros. Three and Super Mario World had such 
bangers of soundtracks uh, that those songs just absolutely stick in your head. And those are just course songs, yeah. you know. And and so it's like it's pretty wild how good some of that music is. And those are still the songs that, like, in Luigi's Mansion, whenever they go, like, you meet the ghost that's a musician, and she's, mm-hmm. like, playing songs from Mario 3 or Mario World, and you're just like, yeah, those, man, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, for Mario 3, I will find myself whistling the, um, the overworld theme for World 1. Yeah, um, All the time, even though, I, you know, maybe this is sacrilege, I don't even like Mario 3 that much. No, there's uh, there's only a handful of parts of Mario three that I actually like uh, very much, and also um, like I mostly have played it in the All Star uh, cartridge, and so like I cannot play the original. It mm-hmm. is terrible. I hate the way it looks on the original NES. I will not play it. Uh- <laughs> Fair enough. I have a hard time going back to the NES versions as well. I'm, I'm an All Star kid, and yeah. But yeah. anyway. Uh, so let's talk about, while we're on the subject of audio, let's talk about the voice acting. And this is the game that introduced most people to Mario's um, longtime voice actor, Charles Martinet. What, what an auspicious time for us to finally have the 64 podcast right after the actual retirement of Charles. Yeah, it's we did not plan it this way, folks. <laughs> but This has actually been on the docket since before then, right? Technically? Hmm? Technically, we've been talking about doing this since before he retired, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We and we mentioned it, in the, and we have the receipts. If you go back and listen to the end of the last podcast, we actually said we were doing Super Mario sixty four. So yeah, I I have evidence that yeah, this absolutely. isn't anyway. I don't know why I'm getting hung up on that. Um, <laughs> so Charles Marnay does such a great job with Mario here, um, and before. Charles came along. Mario always had kind of the, you know, he he was a, an Italian American plumber from Brooklyn. So every, you know, everyone would kind of voice him a little bit like Lou Albano or I don't know who did it in Mario Brothers three, but you know, Super Mario Brothers three in the Super Mario World's cartoon and Mar- Hotel yeah. Mario. Um, it's always, you know, he had kind of more of a gruff voice like this. Yeah, and he was That's definitely a stone, had a stone, Luigi. Voice. You didn't make that. You know, sounds like Rocket Raccoon most of the time. <laughs> But Charles Martinet came in, and he he realized that oh hey this is a character for kids, you know let's let's instead of doing kind of the gruff blue collar thing let's try to do someone who's a little bit happier funner you know kind of uh, more Mickey Mouse pitch and reportedly when he um, auditioned he was like the last person in the audition he had to beg them to get uh, to let him uh, record for it and he, then he he like he was. Wanting to keep them there for as long as possible to try to leave an impression on him, them. So he, he kept going until they ran out of tape. <laughs> um, and just ad-libbing all this dialogue for Mario and doing, doing the high Mario voice. And reportedly, the, the people there, the sound engineers, they didn't send anyone else's uh, uh, auditions in. It's just like, yeah, no, this guy. <laughs> This is him, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it makes sense, because yeah, he, him, he was, he already was the Nintendo mascot at that point, but uh, obviously the design behind 64 Mario kind of solidified what he was supposed to look like and sound like, really. And so, because, uh, you know, this is first foray into being three-dimensional, and so you could get a way better idea of what he actually looked like. The shape mm-hmm. of his face is 
seems way different in World than in 64. Uh, it might not actually be, but it's just hard to tell with the 2D sprites. Yeah. And so this is what solidified him as the Mickey Mouse of Nintendo, essentially, was mm-hmm. was Martinet's voice and that look. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a big big deal, and it, like, it, it obviously worked well. Obviously, you can tell, because here we are, uh, Mario movie, uh, super successful, um, he looks more like he did in 64 than he looks uh, in uh, any of the earlier Mario games. Yeah, and... remember when Mario had jowls? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, and then all that to say as well that, uh, you know, the fans' reaction to not hearing Martinet as the voice actor, it just obviously is just so obvious that he personified what Mario was and made Mario the success that he is in a lot of ways. And uh, it did a really good job. Like, can't can't fault him at all. Um, I would say that uh, having done fake Mario voices mm-hmm. uh, and having listened to different version of Mario voices and stuff over the years, I could not take an hour and a half of somebody doing the the actual Mario voice on camera. I mm-hmm. think we might maybe talked about that on our Mario podcast. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it is a good idea to move away from from it for movies and stuff like that. But that said, definitely we'll miss hearing Charles because uh, such such a great voice actor and cool dude. Yeah. Now, and interestingly, this is not the first role Charles Martinet had in a, in a Nintendo game. What did he do before? He was the announcer in Super Punch Out. Oh, that's right. He was. I remember reading that at one point and thinking it was funny because uh, obviously in Punch Mike Tyson's Punch Out, Mario was the ref, uh, the ref and so it actually works really well. <laughs> um, but yeah, he does a great job here. I will say the tone does seem a little inconsistent. I don't know if that's just the recording being like compressed all the heck. Because if um, if you ever get the chance, go on YouTube and listen to the. Um, the uncompressed audio from Star Fox 64 and so different. Yeah, it is so different. Like you get so much more of the emotion and like you you don't think that that would matter that much. It's just like, oh, it just sounds kind of fuzzier. No, like, you know, when Falco says this is Corneria City, this is horrible. Like it sounds kind of corny in the game. But when you listen to the actual one, you can feel like the guy was putting actual feeling into it. You, right. Or like all of Slippy's lines where he's like, was mine or can you get this guy off of me and stuff like that like sounds like just a child whining most Uh of the time in in the game but actually sounds like maybe somebody who's a little bit concerned about somebody shooting them in the back Uh, yeah so i don't know (laughs) if it's just this but like martin a some of the voices lines here do sound much lower in register and um gruffer like when mario's pulling himself up a ledge you know it's (laughs) like here you know more And not like, or something like yeah. that. And then some, he's really high. Right. And I will say that there is a, we, we generally refer to it as flanderization. There was a bit mm-hmm. of flanderization in in voices over the years anyway. Um, as a voice actor becomes, when they first start out, they get the voice figured out and they mm-hmm. start doing it. And then over the years, they actually start doing an impersonation of themselves doing the voice. And before long, their voices, like, it happens slowly over time, so it's not very noticeable. But go listen to, like, of original Christopher Sabat being Piccolo and Vegeta versus anything modern. And the voice is completely 
completely different. And actually, they all sound more similar to each other than they used to back then. And it's it's actually very impressive. And it comes in large part, having done some voice acting, from you're working on multiple projects and somebody contacts you. It's like, hey, remember when you did that character for me like three years ago? I'd love if you did that again. And you're like, I, have, I don't remember what I did. I don't remember how I like controlled my throat. What did I sound like? You go, you listen to the original recording. Well, what you're doing then is actually an impression of yourself. You're no longer actually doing the same voice. It's an impression of you doing the voice. Yeah, it's sort of like listening to uh, David Hayter do Solid Snake in the first Metal Gear Solid and then listening to the re-recorded lines in the Twin Snakes, you know. Right. Yeah, Solid Snake in the original one is a little bit more subdued in how he does the gravelly thing. And then in later games, you know, it kind of goes from this guy who's just seen a lot to i'm solid snake yeah he's just suddenly gargling marbles while yeah. he talks yeah and so i imagine marbles that has Marlboros. a big part to it <laughs> <laughs> yes but anyway yeah charles marnay did a, a fantastic job with this a little like like i said a little inconsistent in the tone and like i i will say when i tried to do a mario impression I tried to do a 64 Mario impression because it's a little bit easier for my voice to not be really screechy when yeah. I'm I'm doing those lo- that slightly lower timbre. Yeah, I, I don't know what the tone like. What what would the voice acting word tone for? or pitch? Perhaps. Tone or pitch? Lower pitch. Thank you. Yeah, but okay. So before we wrap up, let's talk about the DS remake of this game because the game has been it. You know, it's crazy to think that when the DS version came out, the game was only eight years old. Yeah, that's wild to me because, like, because we were young enough whenever the DS came out, and we were young enough when the first one came out, that it felt like it was a very old game being remade. Yeah. But now that it's been literally nearly... It's been, like, almost, if not... Yeah, it's been around, like, twice as long, if not longer, since the DS game came out. Than what the D, D, the span between the DS and the uh, 64. Yeah, and because of how memories form, of course, it feels much closer that I played the DS version mm-hmm. for the first time than playing the 64 version. So, yeah, that, that is wild that it was it's so much closer to the release of the actual game that the DS game came out than it is now. So the DS version um, added extra characters, most notably, uh, Luigi, Wario, and Yoshi, and you actually don't start as Mario. You start as um, start as Yoshi in that mm-hmm. version of the game. Um, the graphics are completely redone. A lot of the texture work is different. Um, the models are all different. Instead of like being composed of these geometric shapes that are just sort of floating in the shape of Mario, it's now properly skinned with uh, vertex def- deformation. Yes. <laughs> um. Uh, there's there's also 30 new stars that were added to the game, so there's more to do in it. Um, the power-ups are actually tied to the individual characters, which is interesting. Right. Um, you can't actually... I remember the first time me being like, how do I progress through this part of the Boo level? Like, I don't have that power yet, and then learned that I had to unlock Luigi in order to progress. I was like, oh here like because you, know, you have to walk through a wall at one point in the boo level and i remember being like huh i can't do that here what do i do and then being like oh it's a luigi power oh okay yeah. <laughs> so 
Nathaniel, what's your opinion on this version of the game? Do you think it displaces the original? Um, no, I think it's actually as funny as it sounds. I think it's different enough to stand on its own own two feet as an enjoyable game to play that does not, in fact, supplant the original. Whereas the DS remake, the 3DS remakes of Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask are just superior versions to those games, pretty much. I found um, Majora's Mask is somewhat uh, controversial among fans of the game, but I don't know why. It's probably because they actually changed locations of some things and stuff like that. Uh, there was slightly more than just quality of life changes, and that probably bothered some people, but uh, I liked it. Um, so those versions of those games uh, are easier to control. Uh, there's a lot of quality of life things they added in, uh, a lot of... But this feels more like almost like playing a remix or something, you know, like almost yeah, like... Kind of. Almost like playing, as opposed to like a remaster of a game that's just the same game. It's almost like a retelling or something, or or running a ROM through a randomizer or something. It, it really does give you a unique experience that you don't get from the regular game. But also, it, it I do not feel like I have played classic 64 Mario when I play it either. So. Yeah, it, it really doesn't... It really does feel different. So I, I'll say, first and foremost, um, the controls are worse. They're, they are, yes. Um, part of it is using a D-pad, yeah. which obviously doesn't replace the analog stick. And doing the touchscreen is just awful. I've never no. even... Uh, I've never done a serious attempt to, to play the game with the touchscreen. Like, I'll, I'll mess with it for a minute or two, and it's like, yeah, I can't do that. Okay, let, let me talk about some of the things it does well. I think the level design is actually better because, like, TikTok Clock now has a little lower area so that you're not always just immediately falling into the abyss and having to start the level completely over. Um, so there's stuff like that. Um, they added a tree in Big Tall Mountain because one of the things I noticed is if you're a big Mario, you kind of have to go all the way around the mountain to get up on top of yeah. it. They added a tree that you can vault off of uh, for Big Mario near the beginning of the stage. So there's a lot of nice little things like that that I enjoy, but for the most part, it just doesn't feel right to me. Um... I, I mentioned the controls, so the the digital controls don't don't feel nearly as good as the analog controls. Then having the other characters, like it just doesn't it doesn't feel right to me. Maybe it's just the nostalgia, but having Luigi and Wario and Yoshi there, they feel tacked on. Like you have this game that was very clearly meant for one playable character, and then you're having to like do this weird thing where you're splitting it up, but it's not, you know, it's not, the game's not really designed with that in mind. Yeah, it was a fun concept, but it would have had, and that that I think is where it majorly falls short, in my opinion, is that it, it would have had to have completely redesigned the levels in a way to make it make sense for you to have four characters that you play as. As it is, it's more like Donkey Kong 64, uh, where you have to just go switch just so that you can run through and do like one thing and then switch back, um, which is not good level design for for a 3D platformer. It, it never has been and it never will be. It's like no one does it anymore. Um, is that, yes, it seems fun to have multiple playable characters in a 3D platformer, and multiple playable characters have been done even with varying power sets in platformers going all the way back to the NES. But in a 3D one where the worlds get so big and they have so many places that you need to go and it's all about traversal anyway, 
having to stop in the middle of a level and switch to a different character or something so that you can walk through one wall is just a pain, and it does not make me feel like the game had anything added to it by having more characters. Now, if they have completely unique move sets and there's certain areas of the level that you can only get to if you switch characters based on something like their jump height or this one can fly and that one can't or something, that's one thing. But just being like, yeah, they're pretty much the same character with just the slightest variations that you barely notice, and then, yeah, you have to be this guy to walk through this door is is a frustrating one. Having to beat Luigi so that you can use the power-up to walk through the wall in that one area, in that one level, does not make it worth it to have Luigi in the game. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they kind of acknowledge that with the, you can pick up caps off the ground and transform into other characters. Yes. You know, they're kind of, which at that point, it's like, why bother having the ability to switch right. in the first, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so for me, it doesn't replace the original. Like, I, I think what you said, that it's kind of an addendum or a, an alternate version uh, makes sense. And it's it's better in some ways, it, um, worse in others. Now, I, I say all that, and now I have to call myself a liar. It is a superior game in every way because of the falling line-drawing minigame where you have the little tracks that Mario's head is falling down and you have to draw the lines to get it to go around things, that makes it better than every game that's ever been made. That's game of the year for me. That's game of all time. You actually like those things? <laughs> I hate that, those puzzles. That particular mini game, I like actually got a weird amount of enjoyment out like on car rides. <laughs> uh, for me, it was always the, what was it? It was like a really simplified version of poker. That was the one I always liked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking. No, the, the falling lines one. I have I have always hated those in video games. <laughs> <sighs> but so, um, in conclusion, final thoughts on this is Super Mario 64 the greatest game of all time? I think that's a loaded question for a number of reasons. And uh, mm -hmm. here's here's the place that I've gotten to over the last little bit of time. I was literally, it's hilarious how many of these things actually literally play into the last hour and a half when I was talking to my brother-in-law. But mm -hmm. um, he was trying to show me a tier list, uh, like or like greatest game of all time video from a streamer named Coney. And he was like putting them on a, like an actual like, uh, tournament style bracket and pitting mm -hmm. games against each other in a randomized seed and then just like picking the one he thought was the best and stuff and his issue is that he intermittently would choose some based on whether or not he just liked them personally and then others he would randomly give them like care about the legacy like oh but this game is the reason why we have you know other games like it or whatever so it has to be you know oh it launched an entire franchise you know things like that he wouldn't always do it with a lot of consistency, which made it, like, really difficult. But that's the problem, is anytime you're talking about best game of all time, um, there's two ways of looking at it. Is it the most fun game you've ever played? Probably not. Did it have the greatest impact of any game ever made? What? Probably way up there, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a that's a difficult one because if you if you put too much towards the idea of impact, Pong and Pac Man win every time, right? Uh, <laughs> because they're essentially. I, I feel like you're snubbing tennis for two. <laughs> that's so good. 
Yeah, but, you know, because of the idea that, like, if it has great impact, it is automatically one of the greatest games, uh, just means that the older your game is, the more important your game is, essentially, which is unreasonable. But it is also unreasonable to say that a game is not as good, because recency bias is a real thing, so if it's old, it's not good. And so it is very difficult. I, I, I hate to, to say... Uh, what is the greatest game of all time? I don't think it is Mario 64, but I tell you what, it's probably in the top 10. I mean, I, I once wrote a paper in college that um, was making that argument. I was surprised that my professor was like really on board with that. Nice. But, um, and she, she even recommended I submit it to the school's literature journal. And oh, that's it, great. it was published in the peer-reviewed literature journal. So according that's to awesome. science, no, it's not a scientific <laughs> journal. It's just from a, a community college okay. in rural Oklahoma. So yeah. who cares? But when I say it's the greatest game of all time, again, I think you make a great point. There's there's a semantic debate inherent in that. It's like, what is a utopia? You know, I don't believe there's a utopia for everyone because right. no one no one can agree on what the definition of perfection is. I do think that Mario 64 does get very close to being right there in the middle of how good of a game it actually was, both in its era and still now, mm -hmm. as well as its impact on the world, which is why I do say it's probably in the top 10 best games of all time easily, maybe in the top five, maybe in the top two. Like, <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> but, you know, for me, even then, um, setting aside the, the like, question of where it ranks you know as objectively as you can make a value judgment like that yeah. i would say it is my favorite uh game it's my favorite mario game and i think what i love about it is that it's just there's a purity to mario 64 mm -hmm. you know it's like compared to other mario games it's um there's there's no talking water pump there's no gravity gimmick there's no possess you know turning into a ghost and possessing people and making them do things against their will there's uh now, it's just really it's dark. just mario being mario yep. it's it it's, is the, the gimmick pure. is that it's 3d and like you know it it actually is weird playing the game now um because you realize no the gimmick the gimmick is 3D because, you know, you run around some enemies in circles and stuff. You know, there's all these things that's like, oh, that would have been such a new concept that they feel like, you know, you don't yep. see that in modern Mario games because running around in circles isn't isn't uh, new and interesting anymore. But, yeah, it, it's it's just like this is kind of the purest expression of Mario, at least in a three-dimensional space. I think the only other games that get close to that, um, and they're very different games, or the uh, Super Mario 3D World and Super Mario 3D Land, because those are also taking Mario into the third dimension, uh, basically for the first time, but in a different way, taking the 2D gameplay into the third dimension for the first time. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree on that. It, essentially, what it has going for it so well is that it does exactly what it sets out to do. And and what it set out to do was a great thing, and so it does great things. And yeah. so that's pretty much all there is to it. Yeah, if I could give a final statement, playing this game, I, I've only 100%ed this game twice, despite it being my favorite game of all time, this, you know, for this podcast being one of those. And, you know, it's interesting. It's been years since I've actually gone back and seriously played the N64 game. And it's, it's interesting to go back and play a game that I know like the back of my hand, but also try to look at it with fresh eyes. 
And there are so many things, uh, things I don't think I even got around to mentioning today, but something you may have noticed me saying is I only noticed this for the first time this last time I played it. It's yeah. like, it's it's just so fascinating being able to play this game that I know like the back of my hand and I've been playing since I was like, since before I could read. Um, and seeing so many things for the first time and like feeling, you know, in a weird way, I feel like I got to play it for the first time again. Yeah, that that is one of the things that happens whenever you're whenever you're pushing yourself to actually like beat a game uh, for something like this. Uh, that's actually really cool. A really positive thing about it is that um, you're you're purposefully trying to look at it in a different and new way. You're you know more likely to beat the game. Like if you just picked it up again just to mess around with it again, you might not have gone all the way through it again because you'd be like, well, I've beaten it before and I'm not really like you know, I just wanted to play that level or whatever. And so it, it really does, uh, it is one of the cool things about doing stuff like podcasts, YouTube channels, writing, writing articles about the games and stuff like that is, uh, as long as you don't let it bog you down and, and like make you cynical as a critic, uh, it, it allows you fresh eyes on things that you have even actually seen before. And, and a second look at it from a different perspective can oftentimes just really encourage and raise your respect for something like this. And so, yeah, trying to have a critical eye on Mario 64 has certainly made me kind of go, you know what, like, the things that we complain about about these games from this era uh, are not actually that big of a deal uh, comparatively to what they actually accomplished. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's small potatoes that the camera is difficult to deal with and perspective is difficult sometimes comparatively to the fact that they made the first gosh darn 3D platformer that's just set an entire generation on a path I mean, technically, the, the first are. 3D platformer, I think, was uh, made sometime in, like, 1984, but... No, I said this is the first one that set an entire generation on oh, a okay, path. Okay, sorry, I wasn't really <laughs> sure if those two... Yep, that was a qualifying connected. statement, technically. Okay, my, my apologies. Um, yeah, it's like, you know, the Warren Theater had a big sign that said it was the world's largest luxury multi-20plex, and I was like, yeah, if you tack enough qualifiers <laughs> on there, it can be the world's largest anything. It's yeah, like, as Stephen uh, Trump calls it, the overly specific superlative. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, like, is it was the first 3D platformer to completely define an entire generation of not just games, but gamers. And mm -hmm. create what our expectations were. Like, there's a reason why if you go and power up, uh, uh, chameleon. What is what is the chameleon, chameleon twist? Chameleon twist on the N64 and try to play it right now. That you're gonna suddenly realize that that one time you rented it at, from Blockbuster and it was okay. You didn't have any idea what you're talking about. It's actually hot garbage because <laughs> now you can actually objectively look at it comparatively to modern games and 64 Mario 64 and say, no, it was bad. There's a reason why it, it didn't keep going. It's 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 impossible to control. Not just difficult like 64 is, but impossible to control. Yeah. Well, you say it didn't keep going. It did get a sequel, actually. <laughs> yes, Chameleon Twist 2 was a far better game, but still also never got anywhere. Also, you were an actual chameleon in that one instead of a weird blue sphere head thing. I in the American version and the Japanese version were still weird blue-headed creature. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So that, that's kind of what I have to say is that regardless of if it counts as the best game of all time, I think it I think we still have to thank it like many other games, but we still have to thank it for all of the good games that we've gotten since. <laughs> Alright. Well, with that, that concludes uh, this very special episode of the podcast. Uh, thank you, Nathaniel, for indulging me and letting me just 
gush about my favorite game of all time and, and giving me an excuse to go back and um, re-experience it and, and, you know, have... Honestly, I, I know it sounds really sappy. It was kind of like a magical experience, you know? Yeah. It's not quite the same magic as being a kid, but, you know, it, being able to go back as an adult and appreciate it on that much deeper of a level, that this is this is definitely an experience I'm, I'm going to cherish. Well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you bringing me along for it, uh, even just getting to see how, how much you love the game is, is a pleasure in and of itself, but also, yeah, get another opportunity to play the game more and, and think about it from a more critical perspective and stuff has definitely been enjoyable, and so, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for having me on, Glenn. Okay, well, where can people find you, Nathaniel? They can find me on my YouTube channel, which is Nathan Blake Games. I actually posted for the first time in over a year, about a week ago, and I plan on posting more, but also maybe work is going to get more busy again. So hopefully that happens, and hopefully I can make time for it, but who knows? We'll see. Anyway, my plan is to keep posting there, uh, at least intermittently. So go ahead and check me out there, YouTube, Nathan Blake Games. I play indie horror games mostly, but also mess around with other stuff. So thank you. Anyway, you can uh, follow us on social media. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can listen to podcasts or watch old reruns of the Two Butts and Crew Daily Show from way back in the day or, uh, you know, watch reviews. You never know what you're going to get with us. Uh, We also, you can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on X, Twitter, the whatever. But anyway, so you can uh, you can follow us on social media or find us on your favorite podcasting app. And also, if you like tabletop RPGs, I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, uh, We you can go to twobotchandcrew.com to download Expedition into the Halno Woods, an introductory adventure for the 1D4chan Legend of Zelda RPG system. It's a great system, and this uh, module is 48 pages of completely free content, as well as a, uh, an extra supplement bundle that you can download to help you get started on your Legend of Zelda tabletop adventure. Wow, that has the best pitch I've ever done for that. Yeah, and 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 to those listening, it is it is a load of fun. Uh, the the podcast is a load of fun. We have a good time, but also the game is a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah and if you're if you're a GM and you're wondering if you want to uh, run it, we have a podcast that you can listen to. To, to know what it's it's kind of like. It, it, it did change a little bit between my notes for the podcast and the, um, the finished published version, mostly in terms of there's now more content in it than what I had prepared back then. <laughs> so it's it's even better now. But yeah, go ahead, check that out. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of it, you know, as evidenced by the fact that I've been shilling it for nearly two years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Thank you, Nathaniel, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Glenn. Really appreciate being here. And thank you all for listening. Have a good day. Sayonara! Sayonara!